Making News is a podcast about journalism and news literacy in Wisconsin and beyond. This is Making News. I'm Jane Hamden. I kind of joke about like being the last woman standing, but I there's something that makes me very hesitant to abandon local news just because our future is unclear. My guest is Mary Spicuza, an investigative reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She's a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her coverage of the protests in Madison over Act 10. That was the effort of then-Governor Scott Walker to limit the power of Wisconsin unions. She is also a Milwaukee native. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. In just the last year, you've covered the presidential election, the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, and of course, COVID-19. Most recently, you've been reporting on the vaccine rollout. So all of these stories overlap. But starting with the pandemic, how do you balance the numbers and the data with the human side of, of such an enormous health story? Yeah, um, when the pandemic hit, um, it's it's kind of shifted to an all hands on deck situation for our newsroom. So um, I'm technically a quick strike investigative reporter, which means I get tips and try to chase them down, either working with beat reporters or on my own, depending on the situation. I think everyone's lives and roles at the paper have changed dramatically just because we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are dying and um, it's really redefined our jobs a lot. It's been tough. Um, Early in the pandemic, I was quarantining because um, some family friends of ours uh, were the first, some of the first people to um, publicly, you know, acknowledge that they had tested positive to their credit. They did a lot of um, TV interviews and outreach to talk about what it was like to test positive. But so early on the pandemic, I couldn't go to the newsroom before the newsroom went virtual because I was quarantining at my home to make sure I didn't develop symptoms. So I think from the beginning, it's hit me on a very personal level. And, you know, we do cover the numbers and we do cover the data. And that is definitely important. Um, There have been times where I have stepped back and tried to do personal stories along the way, even if they're not particularly investigative in nature. But um, for example, I did a story where um, I gathered testimonials uh, that were sent to me by Wausau Hospital, by um, Aspirus, and they um, were very powerful stories from nurses, COVID nurses, uh, people who do maintenance, who have to clean the rooms after a COVID patient dies. And it was honestly one of them, I feel like one of the most powerful stories I've been a part of this year, just because it captured what they're seeing and how, you know, sometimes their people's last words were like, I didn't think this was real or I want, I just want to see my family again and what it's like for someone on the front lines to have to be the support person because family can't be there as someone's dying. Or I wrote about a um, respiratory therapist who has spent, you know, almost the last entire year of her life um, helping COVID patients and then died herself shortly before she was able to get vaccinated, she would have been able to get vaccinated um, is when she contracted COVID. And, you know, they were calling, her family was calling her the COVID 
butt kicker. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's just those kind of personal stories I think are also really important because I think sometimes, especially in the era of fake news or, you know, people thinking we're lying to them or hyping this up to sell newspapers, that I think some of those human stories are important as well. And how do you approach all of these big, important stories when you know that you're perceived by many Americans as fake news or an enemy of the people? Yeah, I um, I think trying to build a thicker skin is always, it's always something that it's probably good to do, especially as a female reporter. It's sometimes hard. And I think the social media where people are, it's great for tips and Twitter has been great for tips. It also can become a forum to bully people. And especially I think um, women, people of color, I think do um, sometimes suffer a disproportionate amount of online abuse. I've started muting more people, um, especially if they call me um, nasty names and they don't seem to want to have a discussion, but it's more about insulting. Um, I know we, many of us uh, in local journalism were furloughed this last year. We, at the Journal Sentinel, we were furloughed for several weeks. And um, I remember someone online basically saying like, oh, I'm sorry you got furloughed. You should have gotten fired. And I hope your whole newsroom gets fired because you're such a terrible reporter. And, you know, some of that stuff, it, it's easy to internalize and start um, questioning yourself and questioning you know, how you go about doing your job. And I think it's always good to be mindful of how you do your job. But I don't think that just because you're a reporter on Twitter, it makes it means that you have to put up with um, online bullies and abuse. So yeah, that mute button has become useful for people who are in that category who don't seem to want to have constructive discussions or ask questions, but just want to unload and abuse and belittle. Is your work breaking through to people who say, I just don't know what to believe anymore. I hope so. Um, I, you know, I feel like I'm someone who doesn't have all the answers. If I had all the answers, I feel like I would either be running for public office or on the editorial page. Um, I feel like what I am good at and what my job is, is to get tips, to talk to people who are experts, who do know, to talk to, that could be a politician, that could be a um, public health expert, that could be someone at a hospital, that could be a nurse. Um, sometimes my best sources have been uh, maintenance workers who clean a building but know everything that's going on in that building, or a police officer who's sees a lot, you know, and, and knows a lot and hears a lot. And I think that I really try to keep in mind that it's not my job to have all the answers or tell people what to think, but to try to truthfully and fairly report on what I'm hearing. Um, and that doesn't mean like get a tip and run with it, whether or not I know it's true. That means trying to run it down, trying to figure out if um, if what they're saying is accurate. And sometimes I get a great tip and it sounds like a great story. And the big problem is that like maybe they didn't have all the information or maybe there's a different side to the story. And, you know, sometimes it becomes a different story altogether and sometimes it just gets spiked and ends up never seeing the light of day. So um, I think that um, one thing that I keep in mind a lot is when I was in grad school, a dear friend and I did a documentary about border deaths. And instead of doing the numbers 
or trying to come up with what United States immigration policy should be, we decided to tell the story of one man who died trying to cross the border, and he died in the desert of dehydration and heat exposure. And we really tried to retrace his steps from his small um, village in Oaxaca to where he died, and then continue the journey to catch up to his brother who was in California to find out what had happened and get a first-person testimonial of what happened in the desert. And I remember at a, a screening, a man came up to me and said that he was a, you know, build a bigger wall Republican, but that my, my film or our film moved him and made him think about things differently and try to put himself in the shoes of migrants who want to come here to, you know, create a better life for their family. And that was a really, I always think about that. Um, and I think about what can we do to tell the truth to our readers in a way that will resonate? So thanks for asking that question. I do think about that a lot. Journalists have a lot of criticism from the right. You'll hear the phrase, the left and the media, you know, all mm. lumped together. On the other side, mm. I think average readers may not know about criticism of both sides-ism. And so yes. the idea of saying, and I think it's been particularly challenging in the last four years, mm -hmm. saying, okay, well, I got a quote from the conservative or the Republican, and I got a quote from the liberal or the Democrat, and now I'm all done, without giving the reader a context of which side or which statement or which fact may or may not be true. Is that a problem in journalism right now? Yes, I think it is something, um, I think back to Act 10, um, in Madison in 2011, and in the heat of Act 10, I would frequently get angry calls, angry emails at all hours of the day. And some would say, you are so corrupt, you are in the pocket of Scott Walker and the Koch brothers, and be furious with me over a story. And then I'd get an email minutes later or minutes before from someone saying, you're obviously on the take for the unions and you must have union cash in your pockets and how dare you be so biased against Scott Walker. And it was about the same story. And I used to say like, gosh, well, if I'm getting hate mail from both sides, maybe I'm doing a good job. But um, then, you know, and there would be times where I'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning during the occupation of the Capitol because I would try to get there really early in case something happened. And I'd look at my phone and I'd have a 3.30 a.m. email. And, you know, when I'm half asleep before having any coffee, I remember some woman, I think her name was Gretchen, and um, she was saying I was so corrupt and so Scott, pro Scott Walker that my newspaper was going to shut down and all of my colleagues were going to lose their jobs and it was all because I was such a terrible reporter and I remember like wanting to call her and be like why Gretchen why do you hate me so much but um you know I really that said um I I don't think that being fair and telling the truth always means that you're saying both sides are equally responsible because there are times where that's not true and maybe one side is more responsible or completely responsible. And I don't think it's our job to say, well, you know, somebody burned down a building and somebody didn't try hard enough to stop them. So they're both equally responsible. You know what I mean? Like, I think probably the person holding the gasoline and the lighter is actually more responsible. So I think about that a lot. Um, I can see the criticism of both sidesism. And I don't think that it is our job to always say both sides are equally responsible if, if that's not objectively true. And I think if somebody goes out 
in this, you know, looks out, it's a beautiful blue sky today. And if somebody looks out and says, it's nighttime, and the other person says, it's day and it's a beautiful day. I don't think we have to say, oh, one person says it's night and one person says it's day, but who knows what the truth is? Like, I think we can look at the sky and say, no, it's actually daytime. So um, it's something that we wrestle with. So you grew up in Milwaukee and then left, but came back. Where did that spark or fire for journalism come from? You know, it's funny. Um, I grew up in Milwaukee. My parents were um, MPS teachers. My, my father was at Washington High for um, almost his entire career, aside from one year at Stoughton beforehand, um, and was a you know wrestling coach and a guidance counselor and a history teacher. And um, my mother was a Latin teacher at MPS until they stopped teaching Latin, and then she went to Divine Savior Holy Angels at one point. But um, I was very academically oriented and was kind of a save the world type um, in high school and was in Amnesty International, and we started an environmental club and started recycling at our high school, uh, my friends and I and some others, and uh, started the Green Earth Organization. And I think um, I actually, I remember I really thought I fell in love with Jane Goodall in a, like a high school anthropology class and thought I was going to live in um, the wild with chimpanzees. Um, so I didn't really think I was going to be a journalist. And I remember in high school, um, I had a teacher who... I think I had just written an essay about one flew over the cuckoo's nest and um, she pulled me aside and said how much she loved it and asked me if I had ever thought about becoming a journalist and I was like no and I didn't think about it probably for years after that honestly and uh Meg Jones, um, my beloved coworker who just passed away, used to kind of tease me about this because I didn't honestly think about being a journalist again, I don't think, until I went to West Africa as an exchange student. I went away to University of California at Santa Cruz because I think I wanted to get far away from Milwaukee where my pretty much my whole family lived. And um, it was like the healthiest, one of the healthiest, best years of my life living in Ghana until um, a friend convinced me to try to travel to Timbuktu on a break. And I came down with a terrible case of typhoid fever and was in a hospital in Bobo Gilasso. I was lying there in the hospital bed and there was, uh, at one point I was in an emergency room with three other people, two other people, and I thought we were all gonna die. And Meg said, you mean you had like a deathbed conversion to journalism, not like I'm going to become a doctor? And I was like, yeah, that's pretty weird. <laughs> um, no, I thought like somebody has to tell these stories that like there are people dying of perfectly treatable diseases because of not enough medical care or poor communication, which ironically with COVID, um, I think that's probably happening here and it's not in a, you know, what would be considered a third world country, but um, some of the missteps that we've seen nationwide, um, I probably saw in Bobo Gilasso when I had typhoid. So that's really what planted the seed for me, I would say, is probably a high, a high school teacher saying something and then almost dying of typhoid fever when I was like, I guess, 20 or 21. So kind of weird, but uh, that's my story. You had this this calling, it feels like, or a revelation, you know, about this passion. Might have been the fever. I should have blamed the fever. 
Right. <laughs> but it stuck. And, and so you, you made a change in your life and, and pursued a career. But now I just wonder, you know, looking ahead with clear eyes at the future of local journalism, looking at what has happened to the Journal Sentinel and all the layoffs and the purchase by Gannett, no longer a locally owned paper. And when you look ahead, do you see a future for local news? You know, it's funny, I came back to Wisconsin in 2009 when my father, um, who still lived in the house where I grew up and the house where my mother grew up, um, he had diabetes and he had been diagnosed with um, dementia. And um, my brothers were here taking care of him and my sister lives in Madison. And I just, I never really necessarily thought I would move back to Wisconsin. I loved Northern California and I spent a year in DC covering financial crime um, around the time of the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme explosion. And um, I didn't really think I would move back here, but I really felt pulled to come back to Wisconsin when my father was sick. Um, and I just suddenly wanted, had this like unexplicable feeling of wanting to be closer to home to help care for him. And um, ironically, I saw a job posting for, I had applied a couple places, um, but I was like, I can't take that much of a salary cut to go to a little paper in, you know, somewhere in Wisconsin. So I saw a job posting for the Wisconsin State Journal. They were hiring for a Capitol Beat reporter. And it was kind of funny because I was thinking, hmm, that might be, I'd covered crime in Florida, ran around New York for the New York Times as an intern and thought like the Capitol Beat, that might be kind of a, might be kind of boring, but it might be a nice quiet nine to five job where I could really focus on my family and take care of my father and have predictable hours. And, uh, that was in 2009 and I got here, I think in November. And one of my first assignments was, I think it was Phil Brinkman, who's still there, said, like, we're going to need you to cover this governor's race. Um, and it's, you know, then Milwaukee County Executive Scott Walker against Tom Barrett. And uh, but at the time, I think there was a lot of focus on, um, gosh, was it the Johnson Feingold race? Anyway, it didn't seem like a ton of people were paying attention. And uh, I started covering it. And then, you know, 2011 hit. And um, Act 10, and I, I still remember that February because the Packers had just won the Super Bowl um, not that long before it. And it was like uh, Wisconsinites hugging and high-fiving. And uh, there was a spontaneous street celebration on the east side of Milwaukee. And then, um, you know, days later, it was like everyone was at each other's throats, ready to kill each other over Act 10. And... Um, I was like, wow, oh boy, this is, but you know, it was so much more exciting and invigorating. And I just felt like, thank God I'm here covering this. There was just something special about covering my home state and such a huge event. And I remember standing at one point in the Capitol with Dick Wheeler, who was the Dean of the Capitol Press Corps before he passed away. And at one point, uh, it was just this crowded rotunda. You could barely see marble. And the crowd parted because the uh, firefighters with their bagpipes marched through. And it was just this, you know, crowd parting. The bagpipes come through, this haunting music. And Dick, who had covered everything, he had covered riots after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. He had just, it was like, I didn't think anything would phase him. And he, I remember him saying, you know, we're not covering the news anymore. We're covering history now. 
And it was like such a moving moment. And I was like, I can't imagine being anywhere else besides in my home state covering this. And so there are times where friends think I'm nuts for staying in journalism and staying in Wisconsin. And I've definitely had friends say like, come to Washington, D.C., come to New York. There are so many more high-paying, stable journalism jobs out here where we'd love to have you. And I don't know if it's part of me being such a homer that I love my home state and it's partly that you know, I uprooting my family and my daughter and my husband and packing up and moving to the East Coast uh, doesn't, you know, pers- I don't know if that, that would be the best for us personally. But I also think part of me feels like I don't think it's good for our country or for people of Wisconsin if journalists just all pack up and head to the East Coast and they're either in California or New York or D.C. I don't think it's good for democracy either. And I don't think it's good for public openness and uh, covering meetings. And I kind of joke about like being, I might be like the last woman standing, um, but I, there's something that makes me very hesitant to abandon local news just because our future is unclear. What should citizens understand about why we need standards-based journalism? Yeah, I think that for all of the criticism we get about fake news, there have been so many times where I've broken a story or uncovered something or done a records request and and found something out or attended a meeting and being the only reporter there to report on what happened. And it's funny because I've heard from people sometimes who say like, why aren't you reporting on this? And then they send me a link to my own story. Or, um, and they'll be mad that we're not paying more attention to something. But then part of me thinks, like, I don't think you realize that the reason you know about this and the reason that you know enough to be upset about it is because of local journalists, me or others, reporting on it. And uh, sometimes things get picked up by national media. And they do a great job of covering it. And so it's not to diminish the importance of national media and a strong, you know, strong national media. But I think a lot of the time national media wouldn't know about things that are happening around the country unless local news was here to break it and be the first ones to report it. Um, And sometimes they might descend and uh, flood the zone, but not always. Um, But I do think that, like, people learn so much from their local newspapers and I think that taking them for granted and saying like I just subscribe to the big national papers and not the little papers um, because I like them or like their think they do a better job or they're more comprehensive I don't think that people quite realize that you don't know what you've got till it's gone, and I hope we don't get to that point where uh, it's gone or we're gone, because I think that people would have a lot less information as a result. Well, Mary, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Making News is supported by the Digital Humanities Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee.